certainly we um, just count it a privilege that we're able to worship together every week. We do not take it for granted. Certainly we were apart from each other long enough that you would think that we would make our presence known as, as much as we could in the house of the Lord. So my prayer is that um, as we continue that we will be encouraged to join together with one another. Nevertheless, it is time to get down into the word. And as you know, we have been working through the book of Acts and we're taking all of the really important principles and concepts that we're learning through the life of the apostles. And hopefully we're making an an application, a real application to our own lives. And so today we're going to look at a problem that has happened, that has arisen in the church, that is as old as the history of our church, and that is going to be our constant struggle with wanting to add something else to the process of our salvation. Throughout the history of the church, we have all, at various points in the history, wrestled with the notion that Christ alone, by faith alone, by his grace alone, saves us. It is one of the most difficult concepts, and this war that we've had with this concept doesn't stop in today's time. It is very much so happening today as much as has happened in the history of our church, that we feel like there must be something that we can contribute to our salvation. Now, we're really going to get in deep today about why that's the case, But I hope that the application you make today is that you're going to see that there are real ways that even you, even me, are trying to win the approval of God by our actions. All of us in various ways are attempting to win the grace of God by our works. Whether that is how much we attend church, how much we give, how we didn't cuss somebody out at work. All of us in some kind of way are hoping that God will look down at the actions of our life and render us a positive verdict based on those actions. But I hope today that you see as the title of the sermon makes it very clear, it's Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus and nothing else. And that's the equation. So if anybody ever asks you, what did you do to be saved? You can tell them nothing. But Jesus did everything. And he did it on my behalf. And so what we're going to do is hopefully look at how many of us particularly may be trying to add certain things in our lives right now to make our salvation possible. But I want you to know more than anything, and hopefully this will free anybody in this room, that your salvation is not a product of your good works, nor your maintaining of salvation. Because if inevitably we have been saved by the faith, the works, the grace of God, then it is the faith, the works, and the grace of God which will sustain us. This is why the doctrine of eternal security is one of the most difficult doctrines for people to accept. And I'm going to try to break it down before we get into the sermon today as much as I possibly can. This is the reality. Eternal security is not a free license to sin. This is what most people believe. They hear it. They mean, oh, you mean once saved, always saved. That's actually not what I mean. 
Because the very term once saved, always saved, implies, whether you realize it or not, once saved, no matter what I do in between my salvation, always saved. But that can't be true. Because there is no salvation that has not also borne in us sanctification. That means there is no salvation that happens at the beginning of our walk and that disappears for 50 years and then we die. If that is the case, that you made a profession of faith and then for 50 years there was no Christ-likeness in your life, there was no faith that brought about good works in your life, then the unfortunate reality is, is that whatever happened at the beginning wasn't a real profession. Because, as 1 John says, no one born of God continues to practice sin. So, if we're saying that we are eternally secure in Christ, that means that that is not based on our goodness or our works or our effort, but it must be based on what Jesus Christ said and did on the cross. That is the basis of our salvation. And so we're going to look at that problem today. We're going to look at the, de- the, the deliberation that happens between the apostles. And hopefully we're going to find ourselves in a place of peace when it comes to understanding our salvation. And so we're going to look today at Acts chapter 15, verse number one. We're looking at Acts chapter 15, verse number one. And it says, but some men came down from Judea. And they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the, conver- the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, 
After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for one more opportunity to jump into the word. God, it is imperative that we understand that the equation of our salvation is Jesus and nothing else. It is Jesus and nothing else. Jesus plus nothing. So, God, give us the hope, the faith, the courage, and the peace to know that our salvation is because of the work of Jesus Christ and not because of anything that we ourselves have done, and that you will sustain us until the day of Jesus Christ. It is in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we need to start really hot here because we are dealing with a significant issue and it introduces itself early on in the text and we need to work through it and as quickly as I would like to go and as hot as it is today, we really need to work through this particular text. So in order to do that, I'm going to go ahead and give you the first point for your notes in the sermon today and it is the problem. The problem. Now, As we have seen Paul and Barnabas going through and as they are continuing on their missionary journey and are teaching the gospel of Jesus, they are met constantly with resistance. And I think we have seen in different ways that that resistance has looked differently every single time, whether it was through physical persecution, whether it was through trying to besmirch their name or whether it's through counteracting what they are teaching about the truth. They have been met with resistance every single time. Now, this time they are met with probably the most popular resistance in the church. And it is this legalism. They are met with legalism. Now, I want to be as clear as I can to define what legalism is and what legalism isn't. Because as you would probably imagine, I get called legalistic quite often. So let me distinguish what legalism is. Legalism is believing that you are gaining some sort of favor because you are specifically obeying the laws. And because of your obedience to the law, God is seeing you as more righteous. Let me shorten that up. You think God likes you more because you do good stuff. That's what legalism is. Let me tell you what legalism isn't. Legalism is not convincing others and making the best effort that you can do to be obedient to God's law. Because there's a difference in that equation. One says, I want to be accepted by God, therefore I do good works. The other says, because I have been accepted by God, therefore it produces in me by faith good works. Totally different. So if you have a desire to be obedient to God's word through the strength of the Holy Spirit, you are not a legalist. You are a Christian. But if you attempt to gain favor in God with God because of your obedience to God's law, because of your disciplines, then you're not a Christian. You are a legalist. I hope I'm making that clear. 
This is the problem from these men. The apostles to them are teaching a law-denying, law-undermining gospel. But they were presenting a Jesus-denying gospel. And it's either or. Oftentimes, people are either presenting us the gospel of freedom according to faith in Jesus Christ or the gospel of imprisonment according to our own righteous works and action. That's usually the gospel that is presented. The exact wording from the Greek, in fact, is actually probably more direct than our ESV version here. This is what literally the Greek says. If you are not circumcised according to the customs of Moses, then you are not able to be saved. So what they were saying is if you do not perform this external action, God cannot do anything internally in you. And I don't know if you noticed that, but that puts the sovereignty not on God, but on my actions. God is obligated to respond to what I do, but that's a myth. God can and will override our wills every single time and do whatever he wants to do. Now, this is what should be freeing is that there actually is nothing that can prevent salvation for me because if God wants me to be saved, he will absolutely overcome my resistance and save me. So that means even if I don't follow the pattern or the methods that other people follow, that is not a hindrance to the almighty, all-powerful God. He can save to the utmost. See, this is also the problem that it presents. And when you're dealing with others who believe that there needs to be some additional step added to salvation, you have to address it directly like this. If you are saying that one needs circumcision or one needs baptism or one needs church membership or for Pentecostals in the room, speaking in tongues, whatever you make up in order to be saved, then you are blaspheming against the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me explain why. Because what did Jesus Christ utter as he breathed his last? He says, Tetelestai. It is finished, paid in full. In other words, there is no additional act required to provide salvation for people. It was completed in Jesus Christ. So if I say, no, it wasn't that you need baptism or you need this evidence or you need this, then what I'm saying is that there is no sufficiency found in Jesus Christ. And if there is no sufficiency found in the death of Jesus Christ, send us all to hell right now. That's the reality. If there is any additional work required on my part for salvation, none of us would be saved. None of us would be saved. What you are essentially saying is, That wasn't enough, Jesus, and you aren't enough. Now, we need to wrestle with this because a lot of times people don't understand why a person would be a legalist. And for several years, perhaps, it baffled me as well. But the more you dig deeply into it, the more you realize why people decide to go down this path. And I want you to think about it. So we say, why in the world would someone in their right mind be willing to make such a damning claim 
as Paul would say, that they need to add something to their salvation. Now, it isn't that they don't like the idea of Jesus alone completely satisfying the debt that was placed on our lives, but the issue is that, please hear this one, if we freely accept what Jesus has done for us, that now means that Jesus requires something of us. That is the struggle. Is that we know that in true salvation, what he has required of us, which is to give our lives back to him as a sacrificial offering because of what he's done, then unless you have been saved, you're not going to do that. That's too much. And so what we try to do is fill in the gaps between us giving our lives so we give our actions. We give our works, we give our deeds, and we pray and hope to God that that will make us a little bit more acceptable in his sight. But let me break news to you, just in case you don't realize, because this is what people understand. They realize that it will be easier to just do something than to actually be saved. And so they live their life regimented and disciplined because they think that is the sign of true Christianity. But this is breaking news for some. Christianity is not even the most disciplined religion. It's not even the most disciplined religion. Not even close, actually. Now, the reason is, is because every other religion is trying to earn their standing by their works. Of course, they're going to be more disciplined. I'm going to tell you a story. I used to go to this subway all the time, and the guy who owned it was from India, and he was Hindu. Now, mind you, this man has been working around meat every single day since he was owning that, and he was right there doing all of it. And when I met him, I think he was 26 years old. He had been working there about four years. And he said, well, you know I'm Hindu. I was like, yeah, you told me that, but I don't know what that means. He says, we don't eat meat. I asked him how a sandwich tastes one time. He said, I don't know. I've never tasted a single sandwich. Because in his religion, if you are to not eat meat, you don't eat it. But see, this is the thing. Why can they be so disciplined? Why can the Muslims be so disciplined? Why can the Jehovah's Witness be so disciplined? Why can the Mormons be so disciplined? Because in their faith, they are told, if you do not meet the standard that you have been, that has been set before you, then there is total and absolute condemnation. See, if you provide condemnation as the only alternative for people, they will be disciplined, but that's not how it works in Christianity. We cannot be disciplining ourselves just out of fear that condemnation will happen because there are many people, unfortunately, who discipline themselves right to eternal damnation. Because in Christianity, you can do all the stuff and still not be in right relationship with God. See, the other ones say, as long as you do the stuff, you're right, you're good. And just in case you don't believe me, I was at a funeral mass just yesterday. This was a late night added to the sermon. I was in, the, in, the, in a funeral mass yesterday, 
And some of the quotes out of that were, we pray for both the living and the dead because they believe that their prayers are the works that the dead can no longer perform and that those prayers will push the dead who went to purgatory into heaven. He said it at the funeral mass. He said that we will all be judged and held accountable only according to our works. That's what he said. Now, let me tell you this. That's half true, but mostly a lie. Because there are some people who are going to only be held accountable to their works. You don't want to be those people. See, those of us who have been saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ will be held accountable to his works and what he's done. And so God will not look at us and see our works, but he will look at us and see Jesus on the cross. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous. But see, I've mentioned before that we have been created with eternity in our hearts. That's out of Ecclesiastes. And that happens two ways. That affects us two ways. For the believer, knowing that we have eternity in our hearts, we seek and we press, like we talked about last week, towards and we strain towards the high calling of Jesus Christ. But what does that do for a person who doesn't know God? It doesn't bring that pressing towards eternity, but it makes them feel impending judgment coming. Impending doom. Because every single one of us, whether we admit it or not, we know that there is an eternal lawgiver that will judge us. And when we feel the weight of that in our hearts, We say there must be something, there must be anything that I can do to take away the weight of guilt that I inevitably feel. And we look to our works. And we look to our actions. And so what these men are proclaiming is that circumcision is a necessity for salvation. And it's particularly interesting because it meant that no matter what, Anyone who wanted to be saved had to become ethnically Jewish. And that would still mean they had precedence over any other people. But you see, that is why I mentioned on Pentecost, when it doesn't come in one language and he diversifies the languages and they all hear it in one language, that is God demonstrating to us that there is no people that takes precedence over another. He can and will save any and everyone. And as we know, in Revelation, there will be people represented from every single tribe and every single tongue. That is the goodness in the work of Jesus Christ. This brings us to our second and last point for today. We have the problem and then we see the deliberation. Just because it's a last point doesn't mean it's a quick point. When Paul and Barnabas hear that, hear the way the people responded, they don't just leap back into an unprofitable debate with these people, but they actually go up to Jerusalem to confer with the other apostles. They don't want to fall into the mistake that perhaps we got something wrong with the gospel. And that's not that they think they got something wrong, but they want to confirm that what they are propagating and promulgating is, in fact, the truth. And so they go back up to those who were the mainstays 
and they address it with them. Now, to you all, this may not seem like it's such a big issue, but it has dramatic implications for all of us. There are people and denominations right now who are teaching that there must be some step and some contribution on the part of the person in order to complete their faith. Some of them have even said that salvation is repentance by faith, but it's completed with baptism. There are some people who have said, if you come to faith and you get hit by a car before you are baptized, then you are going to hell. I have heard it from pulpits myself. Now, why do so many people believe this? Why do they think that something like baptism is a requirement for our salvation? Well, let me show you why. And let's go to a scripture that we previously referenced in Acts. Acts 38. And this is where they get that idea that we must be baptized in order to be saved. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, what happens here is that many people who have read this text have taken it and they formalize what Peter says here, but they miss what the question was that happened before this. What must we do to be saved? That is what the question was. And because most of us think that there is something that we can actually do, we took this text and we ran with it. But the problem with that thinking is that repentance if you understand what repentance is, it's not something we do on our own strength. To turn away from our sins, which is the biblical definition of repentance, is not within our power. In fact, if you want to know the truth, we in our own flesh will always turn right to our sins. So, the problem, though, with people who say repentance is a, a work of the individual, then there's no need for evangelism. Let me tell you why. Because if I think that I came to faith on the basis of my own ability to turn away from my sin and choose the good, which is God, then why am I sharing my faith? I got mine. You go get yours. I repented on my own strength. All you have to do is repent on your own strength. And you will hear the sermons, and it is a sermon of abuse. It is not a sermon of grace. It is a sermon of condemnation. It is not a sermon of mercy. Because they feel like they individually were able to repent of their sins themselves. And that is such a denial of the gospel. But not only is it a denial of the gospel, that has to be the most miserable way to think that your Christianity is held up by your own strength. See, when we say repent, we don't mean what the legalists say, which is do it like I did it. When we say repent, we mean based on God's revealing nature of truth. He causes us to turn away from our sins. Now, we have to understand that what this does for us is provides freedom, but it provides us freedom not because we deserve to be free. It provides us freedom 
because we're guilty. Nobody who gets freedom was already free. So when we hear the truth of salvation and what a legalist must admit, that if salvation means freedom for you, that means that I had to be a prisoner to something. And for every single one of us, equally, it was our sins. And we have a tendency to formalize that, to think that it's baptism, to think that it's all these things. For, for many of us, salvation isn't complete until we get into a small group or we give our tithes or we serve or we sing or we attend church. And while most of those things may be the necessary byproduct of salvation, they are not the cause of salvation, nor are they solely the evidence of salvation. We are naturally bent to do something, but salvation is not about doing. It is about being. Salvation is not about doing. It is about being. And we do not have the ability in our own strength to be anything but sinners. It takes a holy and compassionate God to intervene in our lives. And the struggle with this is that the world teaches us that anything else that we want to be is a matter of what we do. You want to be successful, you have to do the work. But Christianity is completely different. You want to do good works, you must first be a Christian. This is not something that the apostles want to gloss over. So they go over this and they make sure that they are getting it right. And so I want to look back at something that happens in Paul's conversion and what he does in Galatians to make sure that what he was saying was right. So we're looking at Galatians 2 and 1. This is really important for us to understand. Paul speaks here. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who went with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted, entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Let me tell you the connection here. When they go back up to Judea to make sure that they were getting the gospel right, what Paul had had happen in his conversion is that he was away. For 14 years, and in that midst of time, he is doing nothing but receiving divine revelation from God regarding the truth of the gospel. This was revelation that he had not yet revealed to Peter and the other apostles. He had revealed it specifically to Paul and Paul alone. 
And Paul tells us what that revelation was. That this gospel was not based on any works, any circumcision, any group of people, but it was based on the works of Jesus Christ. And that if we believe in the redeeming death of Jesus, no matter where you come from, you can be saved. That is what that revelation he received was. And he says, and I I took that revelation And then I went up to those, and he says, who seemed influential. What he's referring to is the other apostles. He says, and I confirmed with them that I was not running and had not run in vain by promulgating this gospel. And he asked this, and they added nothing to this revelation. In fact, they didn't even make Titus get circumcised because they knew what I said was true. The revelation that Paul receives is vitally important for us. And this is specifically important for you in this room today. If you feel like you are holding your salvation up in your own strength. One, I'm going to tell you, it's like when I fix stuff, you're holding it up on the basis of like tape, gum and glue. That's how well you're holding your salvation up. That's it. But I want this to provide freedom for you. That what holds your salvation together is much stronger than tape and glue and gum, but it's the nails of Jesus Christ. That is what it means when it says, I have been crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's not I. It is Christ who lives in me. Because when he was nailed to the cross, I became nailed to the cross. And it's him who is holding and bearing the weight of that cross, which holds my salvation together. And as the Bible says, has sealed me until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? To know that I can walk in liberation and in freedom and in grace and in mercy because Jesus Christ has done everything that was necessary for me to be saved. And my only rational response, according to Romans 12 and 1, is to present this little fickle body as a sacrifice, as an offering. To be transformed in the person that I am and to be renewed. Not being conformed to the world, but actively resisting and rejecting the world. That is our salvation. And if you think there is anything that you can add or contribute to that, then you have completely misunderstood what Jesus came to do. It's not about discipline. It's not about your works. It's not about your righteousness. It is about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And yes, our salvation, don't put me in that category with those free grace people. Let me be clear. Our salvation should produce in us obedience. But we should never feel obligated. Let me tell you why. 
for the husbands and the wives in here, if you ever feel obligated to keep your vows, there's no love. There's no love. Because what you do out of obligation is a prison. The only reason you should keep your vows is because you love that person that much. Likewise, for us, the only reason we should desire to be obedient to Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God laid out for us in the Bible is not out of obligation. It's like, what else am I going to do? I love him that much that I don't want to displease him. I don't want to fail him. I don't want to fall short. And I do every day. But I would never find comfort in my falling short. Because every time I fall, it will be the grace and mercy of God that catches me, that sets me up and instructs me to go and sin no more. How could you not love such a gracious and merciful God? And so if you have been in this room of you and you have struggled with legalism, you have felt the burden of obedience, if you have felt that you have been trying to gain favor with God through your actions, this is the day for that burden to be released. This is the day for you to walk in the freedom of the truth of the gospel. And Jesus Christ is well able to bear our burdens. He is able to save to the utmost. And quite frankly, he doesn't need my help. He doesn't need your help. In fact, it is not until we move out of the way and stop trying to earn his righteousness that it will be given to us as the free gift of grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth. Lord, we thank you for the righteousness of Jesus which has been credited to our accounts. God, we were born, each one of us, with an enormous sin debt that within our own strength, within our own ability, it is impossible for us to pay. God, we simply do not have what it is in us needed for salvation. And so, God, if there are any people in here who have been trying to gain favor with you by their works, by their obedience, God, I pray that this has been a source of truth and revelation. But God, also, if there are people in this room who are Christians and realize that they have slipped into legalism, that, God, you will resituate their lives, that you will re form that equation so they can understand that it is by faith and grace and that that produces in us the works which should be the evidence of our our salvation. Lord, if there's anybody in this room who doesn't know you, I pray that you have revealed yourself to them through this sermon, knowing that we were all born as sinners and that we had an incredible sin debt and that that debt was paid once and for all By Jesus Christ on the cross, the wrath of God was placed on him. The wrath that was intended for us for all of eternity was placed on the back of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that he died and was raised so that we wouldn't have to pay that penalty. Lord, I just pray that you would give us freedom, give us liberation, give us the joy back 
of our salvation that we once had, God, to enjoy you freely, to enjoy the life that you set before us, God, to find peace in the things that you've called us to, but to also live for you righteously because of your righteousness. It is in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.